Hi, I'm Ralph Dinsley, known as Dins. I'm the uh, Executive Director and Founder of Northern Spaces Security, and I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. This time on the Cold Star Project, I am very pleased to have David Walker back. He is a past Comptroller General of the United States, and I want you to remember that he served a, a term that was longer than two terms of being the U.S. president. So he has a lot of experience with the government office and strategy, budgeting, getting those guys in line, uh, changing the culture, right? Uh, and we talked about this a little bit in his past appearance where we really dug into the Defense Business Board and also his experience as Comptroller General. He is today uh, the Crow Chair at uh, U.S. Naval Academy. He's a professor. And I wanted him back on because he wrote a book. And we're going to talk about that book. It's called America in 2040, still a superpower question mark, because we're not so sure, right, with the path and the uh, public spending, the public debt that uh, America's gone down. I'm not so sure it's going to remain that way. And so it's time to take steps. And, uh, of course, I got a copy of David's book, read it, took notes, and we're about to have a great discussion about it and what David thinks is necessary, and I happen to agree uh, to get the country back on track. So David, welcome. All right, Dave, so we're here to talk about your book, America in 2040, Still a Superpower? Question mark. And uh, it is a guide, a pathway to success. And uh, I had a lot of fun reading this book and pulling out some nuggets and some surprising details. Ross Perot snuck in there somehow. Uh, I wanna chat about him for a second as we get in there. And so, you know, you, you were Comptroller General for nine years, as we were talking about before uh, hitting record, that's longer than two-term presidents. And so you get a view from a height from doing that and uh, some knowledge and some perspective that other people uh, are unlikely to get, right? And so I found that, especially the first half of this book kind of lays out the, the what, and then the second half gets into a lot of charts and graphs and, and for the visual learners and that, which you and I know are really important uh, to, to convey the how, right? So... I want to begin with this. Uh, there is a book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty by a guy named Albert Hirschman uh, from back in the 70s. He investigated organizations in decline and found that people would pick one of three options. They'd either leave or they would speak up or they would shut their mouths and go along with the party line kind of thing. And I feel that your book here, Voice, has been the option, right? You've chosen to speak out and say, no, I want to do something different here. What made you believe that writing a book was the best way to influence others? Well, first, I think it's important to note that this is, uh, you know, just one of many steps that I've taken. And this is just the latest book. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Talking about those three options, I chose the speak up option uh, and speak out option. Uh, I was controller general of the United States for almost 10 years. Uh, and during that period of time, I became convinced that that uh, Washington policymakers had lost control of the nation's finances uh, and had put us on an irresponsible, unsustainable course. Uh, and every year the GAO would issue a variety of reports, the long range fiscal outlook, the audit report on the United States, uh, but you know, issuing reports just doesn't get the job done, all right? And so I decided 
that I needed to be more proactive. Uh, and that's when I ended up working with uh, think tanks on the right and the left. Uh, we did the, the fiscal wake up tour, uh, you know, 60 minutes uh, interviewed me. Uh, there was a critically acclaimed documentary, IOUSA was done. Uh, and it was all, you know, uh, professional, objective, fact-based, nonpartisan, non-ideological approach. And the concern over this issue, our fiscal irresponsible and sustainable path, reached an all-time high in 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, but since then, we're actually in much worse position. Uh, and yet people are still issuing reports, uh, but nothing is being done. Uh, I issued a book in 2010 called Come Back America, Turning the Country Around and Restoring Fiscal Responsibility. It was a national bestseller uh, and uh, it, it helped contribute to increasing awareness. Uh, and then since, since then I've seen things get worse and I decided that given my background, given my new position um, over the last two years as being a professor at the Naval Academy, which gave me a lot more national security uh, experience and expertise, that it was time to issue a new book. Uh, and that's why I wrote American 2040, still a superpower question mark. Uh, and it's geared more towards policymakers, uh, but it is written in a way that is understandable for anybody with a high school education. Uh, and because it, this is the future of our country, it's the future of our families. Uh, and I think everybody has a stake uh, in, in, in the issue. Right. Yeah, uh, it is an approachable book. There are lots of charts and graphs. Uh, I was joking before we started that uh, this is Stephen Hawking quote that every equation you add cuts your readership in half. And Dave was quick to correct me. There is only one equation in the book. And, and it's, it's in, in the appendix. <laughs> so you got to go digging for <laughs> that I, one. And I apologize for it. Right. <laughs> so so there's lots of charts and graphs in the second half. Um, now, we've got a couple of uh, of of you know, supporting authors on here, you've got uh, Admiral Bill Owens, who wrote the forward, and uh, he was a vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and also John Newble, who's, uh, I looked up a little bit and found out he was with the US Navy, and that's about all I learned. So I'm curious, um, what, what kinds of contributions they made to the book? Sure, well, well Bill Owens is a friend, John Newble's a friend, and Bill was vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the second highest ranking position in the US military, uh, during the Clinton administration, when there was a drawdown of our military, uh, the size of our military, if you will, in an attempt to try to restructure our, our defense positioning. Uh, John Newble is also a Naval Academy graduate with Bill. Um, John is a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, John also was uh, Chief Financial Officer of uh, Housing and Urban Development. He was also had uh, positions in the, in the Defense Department. Uh, and the three of us have been engaged in this issue in, in, in different ways for a number of years. We're all very concerned about the threat to our economic and national security posed by our, our current position and path. Uh, and we're all trying to work in various ways to, uh, you know, wake up policymakers uh, and uh, try to encourage them to be able to adopt some sensible solutions before it's too late. Mm -hmm. All right. One thing that hopped out of the forward by Admiral Owens to me was that thinking 20 years ahead, i.e. what you're doing here, is rare, he says, in our government. And that disturbed me. I was like, well, why is that the case? Well, frankly, uh, you know, teenagers tend to look to the weekend. <laughs> Politicians tend to look to the next election. Mm. Uh, and by definition, um, if you're in the House, that's no more than two years away. If you're in the Senate, that's no more than six years away. 
Uh, in addition to that, um, while China has a long-range strategic plan uh, that is updated periodically, the United States does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the biggest arguments that I make is, look, if you, have, if you don't have a plan, all you have is prayer. Don't get me wrong. I'm for prayer, but I'm for prayer and a plan. Uh, and, you know, when I was at the GAO and, and head of the uh, Control General of the United States, uh, we did our first ever strategic plan mm-hmm. in 2000. Uh, and it was, the mo- it was the broadest, the longest range, the most integrated plan the U.S. government had. And it's still that way. Uh, so it's time for the federal government to recognize that you just can't require individual departments and agencies to do planning. You need to have a comprehensive, forward-looking threat, risk, opportunity-based, outcome-oriented, resource-constrained plan. Uh, and we still don't, and we need one. Right. Yeah, you'll have pieces of, of the government. Uh, DOD will put out some sort of threat assessment or something. Uh, the space industry uh, had a, a resources kind of guide that came out a year or two That's ago. Right. But, but it's not coordinated. Right. It's guys talking from here and over there and then they're, <laughs> they're not getting well, the other together. Thing, some, yeah. Sometimes they're sometimes they are inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're overlapping. Sometimes they have gaps. Sometimes they work against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'd be amazed. I mean, you know, we're trying to control, for example, the government's trying to control health care costs. Right. We spend way more per person than any other nation on Earth. And yet we get below average outcomes. What's the single largest tax preference in the Internal Revenue Code? Healthcare. Hmm. So we're trying trying to provide incentives, and it also uh, reduces the transparency of the cost of healthcare. So we're trying to control the cost. On the other hand, our federal policies are, are doing things that do exactly the opposite. They're increasing mm-hmm. the cost and reducing transparency. Okay. Well, let's begin with this here, Dave. Let's hear your definition of superpower, because that is the word in the title. Still a superpower? Question mark. Right. Uh, we better pick that target out, right, and define it. So you've got four dimensions uh, of, of what that means. So yeah, in my view, a modern day superpower is a country that has global economic, diplomatic, and military power and cultural influence. Mm-hmm. And I believe that since the end of World War II, the United States is the only country that has met that definition. The Soviet Union did not meet the economic criteria, nor did it meet the cultural influence criteria. But now we're facing a re-emerging China mm-hmm. who either has met the criteria or will meet it in the near future. Uh, and unlike the United States, they have a plan and they're executing on the plan. And unlike the United States, uh, you know, they are uh, working more on a multilateral basis, uh, you know, if you will. Uh, and uh, they are investing more in national security uh, rather than less. Uh, okay. Yeah, nobody was uh, importing Soviet genes or music <laughs> to America. And, uh, and at the height, folks, uh, a lot of people don't know this, the Soviet economy was only a third the size of, uh, of the United States. So, you know, you move next into what we can learn from, uh, it's a very quick covering of uh, past major powers about the problem of protecting and maintaining their economic growth and military strength decade after decade after decade, right? Uh, and the ones that jumped out to me, because I know quite a bit about them already, you mentioned the Turks, um, Rome. Rome really stood out to me. Um, and we know all their problems, right? They were expansionist and constantly going to war with their, their neighbors and the outside edge to try and turn that into slaves and money and profit and that. But the thing that you brought up that really struck me uh, was this, the, the declining civility 
in the politics, right? And, and we saw this, right? In the early days of the Roman Republic, the senators could go to work and they went to work unarmed, right? But after a while, they had to go to work armed and then they went to work with private armies and then they would get murdered in the streets and sometimes in the Senate, right? And so it got really ugly. So let's cover that for a minute. Why did civility matter so much um, when you were writing this? Well, I talked about uh, you need to learn from the past uh, in, in order to better prepare for the future, because if you don't learn from the past, you're, you're, you might be destined to repeat some of the same mistakes that others have made. And I, I note, I talked about a number of past powers, including Rome. Rome, I think, is very, a lot of parallels between Rome and us, okay? Uh, they were a republic for much longer than we've been a republic, but then the republic fell and they became an empire, all right? Uh, but and it fell for a number of reasons: uh, declining uh, uh, political civility, uh, moral decay, uh, fiscal irresponsibility, overextended military, and inability to control its borders. Do those sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're very consistent. Okay, and so. You know, I think that uh, the other thing I try to point out is the leading indicator on the way up and the leading indicator on the way down of a great power is economic power, because economic power brings diplomatic in influence, okay, brings cultural influence, and it enables uh, military strength. Uh, and so, you know, yes, we're still a strong country from the standpoint of economics. We're the largest economy based on nominal GDP. We're second on purchasing power parity. Uh, we've got a lot higher GDP per capita than China does. But the bottom line is, is that our, our underlying economic growth has declined significantly. Uh, and we face a number of challenges, including mounting debt to GDP levels, which is going to complicate it even further if we don't start making some tough choices. Right. So, yep, you know, look, right now we have a republic that is not representative of nor responsive to the general public. We have career politicians, which the founding fathers never intended. They intended to have people that came out of the real world for a temporary period of time to do public service and then went back to the real world. We have too many Republicans that are too far to the right. We have too many Democrats that are too far to the left. We have very few, little overlap between Republican and Democratic elected officials, so they don't want to compromise. The margins in the House and the Senate are so close that every election could result in a change of control, which further complicates the situation. And 43% of Americans, including myself, are unaffiliated. And yet, we're largely unrepresented because when they create boards and commissions and they make appointments, they're making them along partisan lines. I mean, they might require bipartisan action. They don't require transpartisan action. So it, it's a real challenge that we have to come to grips with to solve a number of longstanding uh, challenges that are getting worse with the passage of time. Right. And I, I hear you on the transpartisanship thing um that's that's so important i ran for public office in my hometown and uh, it was you know an unaffiliated thing there and yeah it's so easy to get people trying to pull you in one direction or another and uh they want you yeah, to wear a color uniform you? they want you to wear a color uniform hmm. you're either blue or you're red you're yeah. either with us or you're against us right. they want to try to keep it really simplistic the world's not that simple okay <laughs> i mean a lot of our real challenges are really complicated you know you got to do tough things uh, and compromise is not a bad word. It's a good word. Right. Remember what Reagan said. If you can get 70% of what you want, take it and live to fight another day. 
Right. And this, folks, this is not a crackpot book, okay? This is, this is a moderate, sensible book. I want to make that point. Uh, I also want to go back to something we just covered about uh, economic decline, right? And the problem with that. When you find wars in history, it's often with a declining great power and a rising economic power. We see this a lot. And I, for one, want to avoid war. I don't particularly care for you or me or anybody else, even our opponents, to get blown up. I don't want to see it. Right? And so we've got to watch out for these situations and, and make sure that we're maintaining our, our strength here. So Dave, specifically looking at the US now, the book is American 2040, looking out that, that 20 years. If we don't change our course, what kind of outcomes can we expect by 2040 that are putting us really in the stewing pot, right? A, a real mess here. Well, our influence internationally will uh, decline. Uh, the, the role that the dollar plays in the international economy will decline. Um, uh, our, uh, uh, in addition to that, and probably more importantly than that to most Americans, is our gaps uh, in, within the United States will increase. Mm -hmm. We have three large gaps today in the United States. We have an income gap, we have a wealth gap, and we have an education gap. And the education gap is by far the most important because it's, it is the driver of income and wealth. Uh, those gaps have grown. Uh, COVID-19 has exacerbated all three of those gaps. If we don't put our finances in order, not only are we gonna uh, put at risk our, uh, our international standing uh, and our standing as a superpower, uh, we'll still be a big power, but we may not be a superpower, but just as importantly, if not more so, we're gonna have serious domestic tranquility problems because of growing gaps and inequities. Right, if people aren't happy, they, yeah. they, they riot occasionally, yeah. so yeah. Uh, okay, you've got but a We can avoid all of that, and that's yeah. what's important. You know, the book is a wake-up call, a call to action, and a way forward. So right. we can solve this problem, but we need to deal with the biggest deficit in the United States in the public arena, and that's our leadership deficit. We have too many people living for today. We don't have enough people that are trying to prepare a better tomorrow. Okay. And, and we've got a, a serious problem here with, with the deficit and the debt. And I think, I, I don't really know if the average person on the street really knows about this or thinks about it. And I wish they would. That, that's just a key thing. Like, well, it doesn't affect me. Well, it, it does because our, our dollar value declines, which means your dollar buys less, right? And if, inflation, if, go up. If, if yeah. inflation continues to go up, that's the cruelest mm -hmm. tax of all. Right. And who ends up getting hurt the most with inflation? The least well off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you gotta go buy bread, you gotta go, we know the price of lumber has gone through the roof. Um, I, was, yeah. I was looking at a wooden pallet business. <laughs> here in the in the south because there's no pallets and farmers need pallets right and uh, and they're priced right. at three times the price if you could get the wood and put them and, together. and it's not it's, it's not just fiscal policy which is tax mm -hmm. and spending mm -hmm. our monetary mm -hmm. policy is irresponsible and mm -hmm. unsustainable interest rates are at all-time lows mm -hmm. we're not we don't have market-based interest rates the interest rates right now are being artificially sure. manipulated to stay low in order to minimize interest expense to the federal government in order to try to promote economic growth. And as a result of that, people, you know, they're not getting paid anything for their savings. 
savers are getting penalized tremendously, okay? One of the reasons that you've had a significant increase uh, in, in real estate values is because mortgage rates are so low, right? Uh, and people are trying to look for yield. They're looking, how are they going to make some money? How are they going to stay ahead of inflation? When your bank account pays 0.05% and inflation is 2%, 3%, 4%, you're losing ground, all right? And so that's one of the reasons the stock market has gone up is because people have thrown a lot of money because they can't make money on, uh, you know, through savings. They can't make money through bonds because, you know, of, of, of what's happening to to the bonds. And so they're trying to take more risk and they're trying to go into, in, into the stock market. And so far it's paid off, but that's not forever. Right. Nope. Uh, I wrote a paper um, about investment capital, venture capital in the space industry. And I referred to a, a major paper on uh, advancing credit and investment. Um, as, as the interest rates go down and people look for more and more crazy ways to invest their money to make a profit, uh, things start to get really lopsided and they put their money into public works projects that don't make sense uh, and, and things that go upside down. And, uh, and we've seen this uh, through history. So here's a, a title of a chapter here that I'm gonna turn into a question here. <laughs> In your opinion, what is today's greatest economic and national security threat to America? Yeah, I argue in the book, uh, it's our own uh, fiscal irresponsibility, okay? Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that has been echoed by a number of individuals, including former chairman of the, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, who's also a friend of mine, who said that he also believes it's our greatest national security threat. Uh, Bill Owens, who wrote the forward for the book, who's former uh, vice chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the same thing. Uh, you know, you've had the head of the Fed, you've had a head of OMB, the head of CBO, the head of GAO, I can go on and on and on, who have said that we're on an improved and unsustainable path, all right? Uh, and it's gotten much worse. The problem is nothing's being done about it. Okay. <clears throat> and you're predicting a huge amount of public debt by 2050. The, the chart uh, is one of those awful- It's not me, <laughs> it's the Congressional yeah. Budget yeah. Office. Right. And the shocking thing okay. is, is the book was released at the end of September, 2020. And, and we had another major piece of COVID legislation uh, happen uh, in January. And now we've got another major piece of legislation and then we've got other ones beyond that. So it's actually worse uh, than, than shown in the book, although it's bad enough in the book. Yeah, yeah. So it's just give, 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 and then nothing's yeah. coming back in to pay into the system. Well, but now you have people that are espousing this new modern monetary theory, okay, uh, also known as money grows on trees, uh, if you will, theory, which basically says that we don't need to worry about deficits and debt um, as long as we can borrow in our own reserve currency until we have an inflation problem. Well, guess what? That kind of policy is contrary to history, contrary mm -hmm. to basic economics, based on a flawed comparison to Japan. Uh, and, you know, it, it will cause the problem that it seeks, that, you know, it says what enables it. Uh, and it, it provides an excuse for already irresponsible politicians to be even more irresponsible. And, and so it's downright dangerous. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I'm going to upset some economists here. <laughs> <laughs> I took uh, three years of uh, economics in college. I got to uh, intermediate macroeconomic theory and made a model of the Canadian economy. And uh, what I found out was that uh, basically economics is a modern day priesthood and uh, it's got its own 
ideas. It's got its own factions. It's got its own theories. And there's no one right way here. There's just guesses. There's, there may be educated guesses and guesses with evidence backing a theory, but we don't actually know. Uh, and so any economist who pushes forward a theory, it's just a theory, folks. Uh, so yeah. uh, something fun happened in the book at this point. Uh, Ross Perot walked into it. <laughs> and I've been a fan of, of Ross Perot for a very long time, decades. Uh, he, he was very family oriented. He treated his business like a family. Uh, one of the great stories that I read was uh, folks had to check in. Um, especially on weekends and that, uh, you know, where they were. And if they were missing, the helicopters would be in the air, you know, looking for them, right? Um, and so, so you met him? Is that, he is was that a, right? I'm, pleased, I'm yeah. pleased and proud to say he was a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, Ross Perot, when I did the 60-minute segment in 2007, the first person to call me hmm. was Ross Perot, uh, who congratulated me for speaking out. Uh, Ross also was... Uh, the person who wrote a personal check to underwrite the 10 million a minute tour uh, in, in, uh, in 2012. Uh, I'm pleased and proud to say that uh, I also did the last in-person interview that he gave. Uh, he and I did it together from his office uh, in, in 2012 in, in Plano, Texas. Uh, he was a great American and uh, he is the, the primary reason why we made progress during the Clinton administration, because he made this a priority. Uh, he went to the public. Uh, I've, I've got one of his famous charts that he's autographed, one of the few that's uh, outside a museum, uh, if you will. And, uh, and as a result of that, Clinton had to make it a priority for his presidency. Uh, Newt Gingrich made it a priority as part of the, the contract with America. And we made progress, we made real progress. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Ross uh, passed a couple of years ago and, uh, and he is missed. Mm -hmm. He is, I've enjoyed everything I've read about the man. I think he would have been uh, tough to work for. I think he would have very high expectations of, of you, me, anybody as an individual, but I think he would back you up uh, you know, with everything he had 100%. So. Uh, that's that was just a really neat moment there. So last time we talked, and folks, uh, I'll try and include the link to that interview in the description below. If I forget doing that, someone please tell me. Uh, you educated me about the concept uh, of uh, the American military having the tooth and the tail, right, uh, in, in our last talk. Is there anything that needs to change in military investment, in, in development, procurement, deployment, um, to ensure that America remains a superpower over the next couple decades? Yes, and time does not allow to cover everything. So let's just cover a few, okay? Uh, the first thing that we have to do is that we need to make sure that we're focused on credible current and future threats, mm. all right? It, it's very unlikely that we're going to fight a major land engagement in Asia, all right? Mm. It's very unlikely that we're going to fight a major land engagement in Europe, okay? There are new domains uh, of threats uh, those domains are cyber, which is probably number one, okay, bio uh, and, and space. Those are all new domains. Uh, we now have total transparency of the battlefield, all right, and therefore we have to recognize that uh, we need to move more towards artificial intelligence and unmanned vehicles, both in the air, on the sea, and under the sea. Uh, we need to rethink about what our mix ought to be between the, the, the different services active versus reserve. 
We need to relook at our base structure, uh, you know, uh, both domestically and around the world. We need to restructure our compensation system because we have three components of compensation. We have cash compensation, current benefits and deferred benefits. The most expensive is deferred benefits. The second most expensive is current benefits. The least expensive is cash compensation. We've got the best military on the earth, but it's incredibly expensive, all right, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're just, we need to dramatically reduce the amount of overhead that we have uh, as part of the Department of Defense. It's grown dramatically. Uh, you know, we need to cut the, the, the tail, which is the overhead, and so to free up more money for the tooth, which is a war fighting capability. We need, to, uh, we need to look at these different uh, operations in the Defense Department, such as Defense Logistics Agency, Defense Health Agency, or whatever. They are massive businesses. There are Fortune 100 company equivalents, and we need to treat them as that with regard to their governance structure and how, how we run them. Um, you know, and uh, you know, there's just a number of things that we need to do. So the bottom line is we need to look beyond how much money are we spending or how are we spending that money and what are we getting for it, okay? because there's a lot of waste in defense. On the other hand, there's, there, there are areas that we ought to be spending more. And right now we've got a situation where China is, is, is gonna spend 6% plus more a year. We're spending 1.6% more for defense, 16% more proposed for non-defense. Something's wrong with that. Okay. Yeah, so folks up to this point, a lot of what the U.S. military is about is uh, air blitzkrieg. <laughs> We're the best at that in the world. It is very expensive. Um, but you're saying, you know, let's take a look at what kind of fights we should be fighting and, uh, and move it to another domain. And, and how do we deploy our resources? I think, I think warfare in the future, and let's hope we can avoid it, yeah. because one of the primary reasons that you want the strong military uh, is so you can avoid war. Mm -hmm. Right. It, that's one of the primary reasons you want it. And, and so but I think we have to recognize that if it occurs in the future, it's going to be very different than the past. Uh, and the real threats are, are more in the Pacific rather than Europe when NATO was founded. Uh, and uh, and as I said, cyber is is, you know, we're seeing that manifest in different ways, which are not necessarily nation states. Right. But they could be harbored by nation states. Right. And there's got to be accountability when they are, just as when Al-Qaeda was being harbored by the Taliban in Afghanistan, we took action. Mm -hmm. The difference is we should have gotten out of Afghanistan 15, 10 to 15 years ago, mm -hmm. rather than just now. Right, yep, agreed. And uh, would have saved lives and- Treasure. Funding and- all kinds of things. Okay, well, let's get into uh, our last couple of questions, which are more meaty. Uh, I think we might get into some numbers and things like that, or mechanisms and that. Uh, and again, folks, Dave here, former U.S. Comptroller General, that's <laughs> a big financial budgetary type position, reporting position, the guy knows his stuff, right? Uh, he's talking from the inside of the system here. So when I ask what budget controls and standards, uh, are there any changes necessary to these to achieve the levels of, of results you want to see? What, what should we be working on first? Well, a number of things, okay? First, we have something called the debt ceiling limit, which has been suspended. So basically we're writing blank checks right now, okay? Uh, but that's gonna expire uh, at the end of July, this month. 
Uh, and so they have to end up coming to pass legislation to do something with that. We need to recognize reality. It's been a total failure. The debt ceiling limit has just become a political football. It's done nothing to be able to constrain the explosive growth of our debt. Uh, and, and therefore we need to get rid of the debt ceiling limit ultimately. We won't do it this month. Ultimately we need to get rid of it. We need to substitute what really matters, a debt to GDP target with automatic targets, triggers and enforcement mechanisms. We need to supplement that with a constitutional amendment that sets a credit card limit for the United States absent a formal declaration of war or absent certain events and a supermajority vote of the Congress with the signature of the president. So, so, so we need to have much more effective constraints. We ought to go to biennial budget. We should have a separate budget for investments versus consumption like most states, okay? Uh, you know, uh, we need to recognize that you just can't pay for new, new spending proposals or new tax proposals because that assumes that you're okay and all you need to do is maintain the status quo. We already can't afford what we've already promised. We're, you know, we've got tens of trillions of dollars of unfunded promises. So the idea that you're just going to pay for new stuff is insane. You need to, that's why we need to focus on debt to GDP and have a plan that deals both with spending, social insurance reform, and revenue enhancement uh, that can get us to a reasonable and sustainable level of debt to GDP, given known different demographic trends, rising healthcare costs, changing security threats, domestic uh, gaps, et cetera. So those are just a few of the things that we need to do. Okay. And, and yeah, folks wanting more detail can get the book. <laughs> I highly recommend you do it. And it's it's only a couple under, you know, 250 pages, something like that. Uh, it's it's easily readable. Um, I got through it in a couple days and uh, it wasn't... Uh, and you didn't go to sleep. It wasn't a slog. No, no, it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, how much pain do you think will be involved in the in the course correction here? Uh, you know, do you think it's going to be a big deal or will people be able to make the adjustments? Well, first, you have to recognize, just like when you're trying to get in shape, there's mm. some short-term pain mm -hmm. in order to get long-term gain, all right? But I, you also have to do is you have to recognize, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is, is that we don't do what we should do mm. and that ultimately we're going to have a much bigger crisis. Only God knows when that's going to be. But believe me, things will have to be, you know, it'll affect many, many more people in a much more adverse way. And the type of changes that we would have to make at that point will be much more draconian. So the argument that I make is we need to recognize reality. We're on an imprudent and unsustainable course. It's getting worse with the passage of time. It's prudent to act sooner rather than later. So we don't have to make as many changes. We have more transition time. We can phase things in over time. All right. That will make it much more manageable for the politicians. It will make it much more equitable with regard to the American people. And it'll also help you know, redu reduce the burdens that we're placing on our children and grandchildren, uh, which you know, fr frankly is just not fair. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing things to them rather than for them. And that's not the American way. I mean. Yeah. And uh... From, from my study of uh, history and economics, uh, the folks at the Von Mises Institute would be very happy to hear me say, uh, you got to rip the Band-Aid off and do the, the tough things, make the tough choices, because government intervention to try and sustain things or support things seems to just make the problem last longer. 
instead of just making the choice. And, and, and let uh, me give another example of something we need to do, which I, I'm about ready to write an op-ed on, which I didn't address directly in the book, uh, but I alluded to it. And that is, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is also in an unsustainable position. I think it's become politicized. I think it's the degree of independence that it's, it, it, that it's demonstrating now is not very independent, uh, quite frankly. Uh, it's enabling irresponsible behavior by buying trillions of dollars of U.S. debt by keeping interest rates artificially low. It is, it, it, it's about out of tools and its toolbox to deal with the next crisis, if you will. And so I think one of the things that has to happen is that we need to eliminate the requirement that the Fed needs to be concerned with unemployment. It should be focused on two things like a laser. How do we promote long-term economic growth? How do we grow the pie? All right. And secondly, how do we maintain uh, long-term price stability? All right. Those are the only two things that ought to be focused on. When I talk about unemployment, there are things that, have, that deal with unemployment that they can't do anything about. Uh, education policy, immigration policy, you know, uh, unemployment benefit policy. Those are things they don't have anything to say over. That's the Congress's and the president's job. They should be responsible. But because of them having to be concerned with employment as part of their mandate, they've actually done some things that have actually made things worse, I believe, as far as uh, over time, not in the short term, but over time, it increased our risk over time. Okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't find that surprising. <laughs> all uh boy I, I think again you point out in the book you're not anti-immigration we actually need immigration i'm an immigrant i'm canadian i came here illegally and uh went through the process and here i am <laughs> so well, my family yeah, came to this country years. in the 1680s legally yeah. okay yeah. And, but we're in a very different world today right mm -hmm. i'm pro-immigration mm -hmm. you know we're the most diverse country on earth with the most opportunity on earth. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, but, but we need to change our immigration policies. That we need to recognize reality. We need to focus more on skills and knowledge. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between legal immigration and illegal immigration. There's a difference between a pathway to citizenship and a pathway to legal status. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between a permanent right to be here and a temporary right to be here because of seasonal needs such as agriculture or whatever else. It isn't that complicated, all right? It really isn't that complicated. Uh, and we need, to, we, we need to address that. And that because of our political polarization, that's another example of where we haven't made progress. You know, another example is infrastructure. Another example is the fiscal situation. I mean, you know, we ought to be able to make progress here. And this is also another issue that's talked about in the book. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, folks, I feel I need to remind us uh, at this time, if we were uh, in the presidency of John Kennedy, the average age of the American would be under 25. And uh, all those people have grown up now. <laughs> we're, you know, in the 70s now, right, is the average. So things have changed a lot. Birth rates are declining. Uh, we have to do something. So let's finish up with this, Dave. Uh, and it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> Share your views on tax policy with us uh, and how you envision these will alter that long-term outcome of the U.S. economy and uh, keeping well, us for, as the top superpower. In order to get debt to GDP down to a reasonable, sustainable level, you're going to have to do three things. You're going to have to reform social insurance programs, to make them solvent, sustainable, secure, all right? Uh, you're gonna have to reprioritize and reduce projected discretionary spending, okay? Uh, and you're gonna have to reform the tax system and raise more revenues, mm. all right? Uh, 
You can't grow your way out of this problem. You want pro-growth policies, but you can't grow your way out of the problem. The, the math doesn't come close to working. The problem is more a spending problem than a revenue problem, but we've got to have more revenues and you're not going to get it through, you know, tax cuts that make the economy grow and pay for themselves. That doesn't work. All right. It doesn't work. All right. When we laid out in the book, some of the things we talked about was, yes, we need corporate tax reform. But we've got to be competitive. Corporations do not have a duty of loyalty to countries. They have duties of loyalty to their shareholders. They can and will move. All right. We've made corporate tax reform. We've made some progress in corporate tax reform to become more competitive. competitive. Frankly, we might have taken rates lower than we needed to take rates. We still have a problem in that we've got some corporations that aren't paying much, or if anything, uh, you know, uh, and we need to recognize that fact. On the individual side, our, our tax system's way too complicated, way too complicated. You know, we need to streamline, simplify it. Over half of Americans ought to be able to fill out their, their tax return on one page without the help of outside assistance, okay? That means eliminating a lot of deductions, exemptions, exclusions, uh, reducing the number of tax rates. We need to also look at, you know, if we can get the top tax rate down to a reasonable level like Reagan did at 28%, okay, by eliminating a lot of deductions, exemptions, credits, and exclusions, we can tax capital gains and dividends the same as ordinary income. By the way, that's how rich people make their money. They don't make their money on wages. And, and, and you don't have to pay so, social insurance taxes on investment income, all right? So there's a number of things that we can do that would, that would enhance revenues, enhance our competitive posture, and improve equity while, while promoting simplicity uh, and therefore compliance. Because the fact that the system is so complicated means that it's that it's that much more easy for people to avoid paying taxes uh, and and to uh, catch the people who are doing that uh, illegally. Okay, and other states have done this. Uh, yes, absolutely. This names, is not, but, uh, yeah, other know, states have done this, and yeah. and you know with, with success. All right, yeah. um, you know, uh, but again, you know, you've got a lot of powerful interest groups. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'll, I'll come back to something we said at the beginning. The single largest tax preference in the Internal Revenue Code is the fact that individuals do not pay income tax or payroll taxes on employer-provided paid health care. Hundreds of billions a year. That fuels additional health care costs. We need to be doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, health care insurance was compensation. Why shouldn't it be paid? Why shouldn't it be taxed like compensation? You know, people don't realize that their wages are being constrained because employers are paying a lot more money for healthcare than they realize, mm -hmm. and they don't even see how much that is. Yeah. All right. So one of the things that people supported was, yeah, maybe you maintain tax preference for a modest amount of healthcare, but you know, but um, you know, some of the most lucrative plans, quite frankly, for healthcare are by public servants. Hmm. <laughs> okay. That, yeah. So it's like, where do you target the 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 improvement? Um, expertise to be applied because you can go after tax cuts in that um, they did it around 2000 with the the estate tax you know rebranded it the death tax and uh, got total <laughs> approval right from from uh, across the aisle and that, well, to here, cut that let's thing. take that let's take the yeah. vernacular yeah the death tax right yeah how about the birth burden <laughs> how about the fact that every new baby that's born in this country is born with a huge unfunded obligation that, mm -hmm. that is only getting worth with the passage of time, okay? Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, one of the things that's being talked about now, and there are pros and cons to it, okay, is a wealth tax, all right? Because you have, uh, you know, more and more wealth of this concentrated, concentrated in fewer and fewer people's hands, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, obviously, if you're going to have a wealth tax, you're not going to want to have an estate tax on top of that. But, you know, the assumption is, is the people that have accumulated all this money have, have paid a reasonable amount of taxes in accumulating it. Well, that's not necessarily true under our current tax system. And it also assumes that we're paying our way. We know that's not true. We're not paying our way at all. We're mortgaging the future big time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the birth burden concept is a, is a saleable idea. That, that's got legs. <laughs> Could really work there. Well, Dave, thanks for doing this. Uh, the book is America in 2040, Still a Superpower, a Pathway to success. Uh, where can people pick this up? Well, you, you order it online. Okay. Mm -hmm. You order it through amazon.com, authorhouse.com or barnesandnoble.com. They print it on demand. You know, I wasn't looking to make money on this because this is a public service as far as I'm concerned. And so I self-published it. Now, my, all my other books have been done through major publishers. And as I said, the last one was a bestseller. I actually think this one is a better book than the one that was a bestseller. But because I self-published it, you know, uh, you know, it, it's not going to sell as many copies. But we've already gotten copies to every member of the House of Representatives. We're soon going to get a copy to every member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, and uh, and as I said, it, it is written to where if you've got a high school education, you can easily understand everything that's in here. And I, I obviously am not independent, but I think it's a darn good book. Right. Yep. It's gotten good ratings. <laughs> it's gotten very good ratings. Very good ratings if you look yes. online. I need to leave a review, actually. Uh, Thank you. Please do. It. I will. I know how hard those are to get. Folks, yeah. check this book out and, and get educated, at least. Even if you don't agree with, with what David has to say or everything that he has to say, uh, you will get a picture of what is actually going on out there, which can be hard to find. Dave, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate you very much. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best. Thanks for joining us. I really recommend you to go right now before you forget and pick up a copy of Dave's book on Amazon, read it, study it, and don't worry, it's not going to be a lot of work. But really educate yourself about what's actually going on with the budget process in this country. I mean, when Dave said, look, different parts of government don't get together and form a cohesive strategy unlike other opponent nation states whoa like that that ought to take the top of your head off <laughs> like it's time to really do something about that can you imagine a ceo of a business running it that way now i'm not saying that government and business are the same or should be run alike i'm not actually a subscriber of that however good fiscal policy is important and we need to get back on track here so Go check that out. Look, if your business is struggling, if you're in the space and defense industry, if you are cognizant that you need to get a more commercial point of view, a more commercial type of culture built into your organization, say you've been a defense contractor for the last 30 years, you've got 50 plus people working for you, and you have been getting steady government contracts, but you know in your bones that competition is about to attack and you had better get some commercial blood into your system come talk to us at cold star tech this is one of the best things that we can do for you i mean dave and i were talking for a reason and i'll tell you what it is it's overlap of culture cultural ideas we know 
and we agree on what needs to be done and what kind of values and principles and processes need to be handled and taken care of and, and purported, like pushed forward, right? Values. What do you stand for? And if you stand for plodding along as the same old kind of defense contract that you've always been, you're going to get the same kind of results and you're not going to compete well against fast, nimble, quick, uh, changing direction, able to change companies that are coming in competition in that commercial field. You know, back in uh, the late 90s, when I first started out, I worked for a, a small power generation company and we went up against big companies. And I'll tell you, we were able to respond to customer uh, demands, <laughs> customer requests, changes in equipment specifications and that big deals, right? We could do it in a day and our competitors, the big lumbering giants could not. And that would get us orders. Let me tell you, because sometimes it's better to be a small fish in the big pond those folks, those customers want that feeling of personalized service, that they matter to you, not just that you matter to them as a big fish customer. All right, I've talked enough. <laughs> if you want to find out more about how we at Cold Star Tech can help your space or defense business become a viable commercial entity rather than government grants, government grants, government grants, Come talk to us, find me on LinkedIn or go to coldstartech.com. Thanks again for listening.